Ready to start talking to your kids about financial literacy? Meet Greenlight, the debit card and money app that teaches kids and teens how to earn, save, spend wisely, and invest with your guardrails in place. Parents can send instant money transfers, automate allowance, and more. Plus, keep an eye on spending with real-time notifications. Join more than 6 million families building healthy financial habits together on Greenlight. Get your first month free at greenlight.com slash odyssey. That's greenlight.com slash odyssey. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. Hello and welcome to The Sidebar, presented by True Crime Daily, taking you inside the courtrooms of high-profile and notorious cases from across the country. I'm your host, Joshua Ritter. I'm a criminal defense lawyer based in Los Angeles and previously an L.A. County prosecutor for nearly a decade. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter at JoshuaRitterESQ or at JoshuaRitter.com. We're recording this on Thursday, February 1st, 2024. In this week's episode, a possible conclusion to a mystery two decades in the making as two men face trial for the murder of beloved DJ Jam Master J. Plus, tensions flare between Jennifer Crumbly's defense and prosecutors as trial continues for the mother accused of failing to intervene in the deadly actions of her school shooter son. But first, in a move that left many courtroom observers in shock, this week a South Carolina judge slammed the door on Alex Murdoch's best shot for a new trial, despite one juror admitting that she was improperly influenced. Today we were very excited to be joined by Gigi McKelvey, host of the popular true crime podcast Pretty Lies and Alibis and a friend of the show. Gigi, welcome back. Good to be here. Thanks for having me again. Gigi, um, I know that you follow a lot of these cases closely, but one case in particular is a case that you have unique access to, I'll put it that way, and that is what has been going on in Walterboro, South Carolina. I'm so glad that we have you on the show, especially after this huge hearing that just took place. I have some thoughts on it, but want to hear your thoughts on it, especially because you were in court for a lot of, uh, not a lot, for this hearing, for everything that's taken place through much of this trial. Uh, let's just give some people some background. Alex Murdoch's plea for a new trial hit a dead end this week after a judge denied the disgraced lawyer a shot at a new trial, this despite allegations of jury tampering. Murdoch's defense faced an uphill battle as they were required to demonstrate that County Clerk Rebecca Hill not only inappropriately interacted with jurors, but that these interactions unfairly prejudiced the jurors in their verdict. One of the 11 jurors testified that not only did Hill make inappropriate comments, but that her actions influenced the jurors' vote, saying Hill made it seem like he was already guilty. Shockingly, this argument was ultimately unsuccessful with the judge. 
Hill, who also testified, claimed that she never spoke about the case or Murdoch to jurors, though the judge questioned her credibility amid Hill's recent plagiarism scandal regarding the book she wrote chronicling her experience on the trial. Another county clerk, Rhonda McElvin, who worked with Hill, also testified that Hill approached her about writing an account of the case, insinuating that a guilty verdict would sell more books. In her final ruling, the judge reasoned that she couldn't overturn the verdict on the basis of some, quote, fleeting and foolish comments by a publicity-seeking clerk of court. All right, Gigi, first of all, tell us what it was like inside of the, the courtroom. Tell us how, what was the feeling, what was the atmosphere, how did people react to all of this? It was tense. It might have been one of the craziest hearings I've ever sat in. I mean, you you have such a unique situation where um, the roles are reversed. So last year, Alec Murdoch was on the stand in front of these jurors, and now these jurors are in front of him, giving their testimony into what could potentially get him a new trial. And uh, so we were all nervous for these jurors. We kind of see them, smile at them, you know, know them over the course of six weeks. Um, I've been in touch with some since the trial. And to see them in that hot seat with him looking at every single one of them from the moment they walked in as a group, and got their instruction, he kept his eye on them. You could see some nervously looking over in his direction, and they knew they were gonna have to get on that stand and say, that was my verdict, that still is my verdict, and walk out that door, with the exception of that one, which was the first juror that testified that day. The Friday before, we had the one juror who came in due to a scheduling conflict, who just said the same thing that the other 11 did the other day, which is, or the other 10, which is I wasn't influenced couple heard things but that first juror first thing in the morning gets up yes i was influenced there were audible gasps in the courtroom we all looked around at each other and thought that's it he's getting a new trial it takes one yeah 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 that is incredible i mean it, you know i you look for the reaction you it was hard to hear the reaction so i'm glad that you were able to tell us about it from the courtroom but the cameras were focused on him and I didn't see as much of a reaction out of him as I thought, because to me that was kind of earth shattering that she said, I mean, the the words, I felt like she felt he was already guilty. To me, that was it. And that was enough. But the judge didn't see it that way. So that now take us to the moment where the judge is making her ruling. What was your reaction? What were other folks reaction at that point when she basically said, I heard what that juror said, but I don't think that's enough. And she kind of pointed back to an affidavit she had written previously. Talk to, tell, tell us about that. Right. And the other thing before I get into Judge Toll's decision is this juror also said that the other jurors discussed the case before deliberations. I was really surprised that was not investigated further by the defense, by the state, by the judge. That was sort of just swept under the rug as soon as it was said. So that was shocking. But in the beginning, when Judge Toll was giving her decision, it almost sounded to us like she was going to grant him a new trial. She's going through the law. We think, oh, here it comes. You know, round two, trial of the century is going to get a redo. And as she went on with her decision, it became clear she wasn't. You kind of saw Murdoch just exhale, um, kind of maybe with that hope that with that one juror, he was going to get that new trial he wanted. But then it became clear she wasn't going to do it. We were all pretty shocked, to be honest with you, that it wasn't... Uh, it didn't end in a new trial for him because um, you do have that one juror. Although 
I understand Judge Toll's opinion, too. I mean, she's 80. She's a Supreme Court justice. I'm not. So I trust her opinion on it. But the thing is that when you have a juror say that the other jurors were discussing the case before it went to deliberations, to me, I think that's going to be one of the first things when they send this to a higher court that they're going to bring up because that just wasn't even touched. But we all there was a mixture of shock. I think a lot of the public was relieved because he's not a popular man um, anywhere in the country or the world, especially here in South Carolina. So um, but for those of us that have sat through and heard the law and heard the evidence, you know, for six weeks solid, we all really were shocked that um, that it was denied. Yeah. Yeah, you make an important point that the let's not skip over the fact that they were talking about this case beforehand, which they are instructed daily not to do. I, I, I've been in trial and it's an instruction that's given no matter how short the break is taken in court. There's always, they call it the admonition. Please remember the admonition not to discuss this amongst yourselves. Don't begin your deliberations. Don't discuss this with anybody else. And, and it's it's not just formalities, it's it goes to, and I think that's why this ruling bothers me so much, is it goes to the absolute core of our criminal justice system, which is fairness, which is the presumption of innocence, which is the idea that everybody is going to get a completely fair shot and no one's got their finger on the scales. And you see a case like this, and I think a lot of people who were not troubled by this decision are thinking to themselves, well, he's a murderer. He killed his wife and and, and son. Uh, I'm not going to really lose sleep over the fact that he's not getting another trial. I get that. But this case is about more than that. It's about everyone else who's ever accused of anything. And do they would they feel comfortable with the clerk making these types of comments on their case? Would they feel comfortable with a juror saying, I felt like the clerk was telling us he was already guilty beforehand. That's the troubling kind of stuff. Yeah, I agree. And, uh, you know, we all were kind of looking around at each other thinking, wow, okay, so no new trial. But, I mean, it's going to take so long for this to work its way through higher courts. He's got over 40 years in prison. It's not an emergency to get this uh, decided on a bigger level. And, I mean, you have a former Supreme Court justice who presided over this and rendered that decision. So a lot of people think that, you know, she surely did her homework in using South Carolina versus Green as opposed to Remmer that really kind of fine tuned the law as far as backing her decision. I was on a show the other night with one of Dick Harpootlian's former uh, law partners who said that he understood why she denied the new trial based on uh, South Carolina versus Green and, and how that reads. So it's interesting to hear so many different opinions on whether or not it should have happened. I just feel like you you have that admission along with the jury potentially talking. I was just surprised that that wasn't something that was asked or added onto the list of questions like they did when we found out the jurors were watching court TV and watching that first juror admit on the stand that she felt influenced by Becky Hill. That was added on at the last minute. That was the first question the judge asked. I kind of felt like maybe it should have been a, an additional question. Did you ever hear anybody talk about this case outside of deliberation? But man, that was just something that just got lost in the ether in there, I guess. No, you you bring up a really good point. 
I, listen, I understand what the law is, and I understand where the judge placed her decision in all of this. And I understand, too, that we can't have a system that goes back and continues to revisit cases, that eventually you're going to have to say, the jury has spoken, this is their verdict. But in a case where, and listen, like you just pointed out, it's not easy for these people to get up and testify about what they had gone through and about their thinkings. And you you have a juror here who I think it would have been much easier to say, no, I wasn't influenced by anything. But she had the 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 guts to say, I I was influenced to some extent. I did feel like the the clerk was letting us know this person is guilty. My problem isn't how the judge came to her decision. My problem is that they didn't flesh that out further. And like you said, she should have been open to questioning by by the defense to me at that point. What do you mean by you when you were influenced? What do you mean by you felt like he was already guilty? Do you feel that that put, um, if you had any doubts, do you think that that uh, changed your feeling on those doubts, those simple words that the clerk said to you? All of that is stuff that I think should have been explored before uh, putting this to rest. And you're right, he'll get a he'll get an opportunity at appeal, but that this was the this was the moment to explore that and i think that was forever lost by kind of the very confined and strict questioning by the judge what are your thoughts yeah i agree and not only that but if you remember um i believe it was after all the jurors had given their testimony there was an email from joe mccullough who represented juror z who was the one that said she was influenced saying that she wanted to expand on her testimony. And Judge Toll said that she was not getting another bite at the apple. And I was thinking, and believe me, I'm not uh, uh, sympathetic to Alec Murdoch. I don't think he's a good human um, for a lot of reasons. But at the same time, this juror looked very nervous on the stand, trying to keep it together. But you could see that, you know, she's she knows this is being watched around the world. This is of high interest. And she was the one person that went in there and said, yeah, actually, I do feel like I was influenced whether or not she was too intimidated at the time to bring it to the attention of the judge. Maybe she didn't want Becky Hill to get in trouble. Maybe she thought she would get in trouble. Um, but, you know, time to me doesn't necessarily I don't think there's a cutoff date for you to be able to say things out loud that maybe at the time you couldn't or in the year, almost year since the verdict, you didn't say. But if she's saying it now, I just really felt like it should have been investigated further. Do I think Murdoch is guilty? I don't see any way he's not. But for those of us who the entire judicial process, you have to have faith in it. And so you have to wonder, was this just sort of left hanging? I mean, was this yeah. just kind of a we don't want to make South Carolina look bad. We don't want this to come back or admit there were flaws in the system. There are other issues I think during the course of the trial that will come up on appeal, which you know was paused for this. It's just going to be interesting. I don't think we've seen the last of him. I think this is going to continue to be something we see in the news every now and then. But yeah, his defense attorneys, I think, have some fuel to go higher. And I think they will. They're very much, um, not only are they his attorneys, they, they are his friend. And they've been his friend for many, many years. So I think it's a personal thing for them as well. And I think they are convinced he didn't do it. So yeah. They're going to fight until they can't fight to try to get that murder conviction at least to a new trial. Yeah. No, you're right. This wasn't about Murdoch's guilt or innocence at all. This was about the integrity of the system. And I think it left us with a bad taste in our mouth as to the integrity of the system. Like you said, 
what's what are we in a rush for here what's the big hurry if this person has more to add and they want to say something more about it i think it was murdoch's attorney at one point and i think it was in regarding this exact issue stood up and said what are we hiding from the truth i just want the truth to come out here if you've got the defense attorney standing up in court saying i want to hear the truth let's let's flesh that out that's all that we're here to figure out that you're now stepping into bizarro land where you've got the prosecution and the judge trying to shut down further inquiry as to what exactly took place it's a bad look end of the day no matter how you come out on it i think it's a bad look yeah and i think too you know one thing that i've thought about since monday and and watching that juror testify is sometimes the hardest part is getting that first bit out of your mouth and making that public and so maybe that was liberating for her in a way to where she kind of peeled the Band-Aid off really quickly. And then it's like, yeah, I know other things. And now that I've done the worst part, I would like to tell more. And that yeah. door was just shut. Or maybe she thought there would be more questioning. Hey, I just dropped a bomb in the middle of this courtroom. Go ahead and ask some follow-up questions and didn't realize the judge is working off a very uh, confined script. And that was all she was going to be able to say about the whole thing. It really really important points that you're bringing up about this but but you're right i mean this really closes the door on it and we may hear more about this but it probably won't be until years from now yeah so, I, I i think uh you know mr harpootlian's former law partner said you know this could be five six seven years before there's a, yeah. a true resolution to this issue yeah and a lot of people have pointed out since then that hey you know even if he got a new trial he's still looking at decades in prison for the financial crimes not the point not the point. Again, the point is the integrity of the system. And I think it was left with a black mark after what took place in court the other day. So thank you for giving us those insights of what it was like in the courtroom. And I imagine when you describe it as tense, I imagine that's putting it lightly. I think my blood pressure is still elevated from Monday. <laughs> is your child struggling with a specific subject or need help with homework? Are they asking questions that you're not sure you can fully answer? IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids. It covers math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed. This program will improve your kids' grades. Studies done in almost every state in the country. The kids who had IXL are consistently doing better. Powered by advanced algorithms, IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. And it doesn't have to eat up all your time. One subscription gets you everything for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. So don't miss out. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com audio. Visit IXL.com audio to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Calling all pop culture enthusiasts. Are you obsessed with all things celebrity? Do you live for the drama, the laughs, and the unexpected moments that unfold on social media? Then you're going to want to tune in to the Comments by Celebs podcast. Join us three times a week as we deep dive into every aspect of pop culture. Whether it's dissecting the latest trends or just chatting about your favorite celebs, Comments by Celebs has you covered. We have new episodes out every week. Follow and listen to Comments by Celebs on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. Want to teach your kids financial literacy, but not sure where to start? Greenlight can help. With Greenlight, parents can keep an eye on kids' spending and saving, while kids and teens use a card of their own to build money confidence. 
As a parent, you can send instant money transfers, set up chores, automate allowance, and more. It's a convenient way to run your household, customized to your family's needs, and the easy way to raise financially smart kids. Get started with Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com slash odyssey. Let's move to New York City, where trial is underway this week for two men charged with killing Jam Master Jay of Run DMC fame, perhaps drawing a conclusion in the long unsolved murder. Jay, born Jason Mazel, was gunned down in his recording studio in 2002 in what prosecutors allege was a drug dispute, despite the DJ being known as an anti-drug advocate. Carl Jordan Jr. and Ronald Washington were both arrested in 2020 and will be tried together in the slaying, while a third defendant will face trial separately. Prosecutors claim that their case against Jordan and Washington was bolstered in the last five years with new witnesses willing to come forward along with improved ballistic testing. Allegedly, Jay cut Jordan and Washington out of a plan to distribute some 10 kilograms of cocaine in Maryland, causing the men to seek retribution. Complicating the case for prosecutors is their concern that some witnesses have become hesitant to testify and may even lie under oath for fear of retaliation. Defense attorneys for the men argued that the state has no direct evidence linking the men to the crime and that the entire case is built on vague memories from over two decades ago. If convicted, the defendants could face a minimum of 20 years in prison. Uh, Gigi, in, in many cases, when we see a break in these long quote, unsolved murders. It has to do with witnesses finally deciding to come forward for one reason or another. Um, My question is, how do you think that will sit with jurors? You, You have people who've remained silent for so long. Do you think that that calls into question their veracity with jurors? I really don't think so. I think we've all heard what happens to snitches and jurors can use their common sense. So you have these suspects who allegedly came into a recording studio, very brazenly murdered somebody who was a pioneer in the rap and rock world with their work with Aerosmith. This is somebody who's known worldwide to walk in and shoot somebody and walk back out. Um, You have a witness on the stand who an eyewitness to the murder emotional wiping tears saying that after all these years he felt like his family needed closure i don't think the jury uh, is going to fault these eyewitnesses because here's the thing people say all memories get get bad over the years but i think when you see something that traumatic with your own two eyes you bend down and you see your friend who is lifeless on the floor what happened before and after might be muddled but i think in the moment of the murder Uh, Those are things and images and sounds and smells you'll never get out of your head until you take your last breath. And I think the jury can put themselves potentially in this these people's shoes who saw this and say, I would be afraid they go in and murder somebody who's known worldwide. Why would they not come after me if I snitch? And I think that jurors are sympathetic to that. I don't think that that's going to be anything that holds the jury up at all. Well, and to your point, uh, there's ha- has even been safety concerns regarding uh, not only the witnesses, but the jurors in this case. The jurors' identities have been kept secret from the lawyers, even the lawyers involved. Uh, usually in a trial, at least here in California, uh, where I practice, you're provided with a list, you know their names, you're never to turn that list over and you turn that list back into the clerk. But the idea that you would never be provided with any identifying information on these people is um not common let's put it that way 
knowing that some of these witnesses are going to testify to what you said, their kind of fear and why they didn't come forward, and perhaps other safety measures that might be taken to protect the jurors that the jurors are aware of, do you think that will play a role in their heads? Just this kind of uh, background of fear surrounding everyone in this trial. Well, first off, hats off to this jury, because I would just go in there and say, I've formed an opinion just to get off the jury. I mean, you don't, <laughs> you know, these are, this is, you know, no murder should be treated any differently than the other. There is an element of uh, a worldwide celebrity and just the, the attention on this particular murder for so long, like Tupac's that went unsolved. This is a public interest. And so, yeah, I'm sure they're fearful in the back of their minds that if we find these these suspects guilty, um, who associated with them is going to come after us or hunt us down? Because, it, yeah, I mean, I, I would be terrified. Hopefully um, the oath that they took is upheld and that's their focus is to look at the facts and render their verdict based on the evidence. But it, you have to wonder in the back of their minds with this, with so much security in place to protect identities, uh, is that something that's, that's weighing on them uh, we'll see, but uh, I don't envy them, to say the least. No. Gigi, my last question on this is just kind of about these cold cases in general. You you have a very popular podcast. I've, I've seen it many times. I'm, I've, I'm very uh, interested always to hear your thoughts and the, the amount of research that you do on these cases is, is unparalleled. But have you noticed, I've noticed, that there's this uh, trend in kind of the true crime world, I'll call it, um, where people are so interested in these cold cases that get broken so many years later. Why do you think that is? I think there might be some obvious reasons, but I'm curious to hear your thoughts. I think, you know, like in Tupac's case, it was uh, the, the suspect was his own undoing. He openly talked about being there the night of the murder. So sometimes it comes very easily for these investigators to get what they need. But I also think that having the public eye on these cases and wanting resolution, you know, uh, Jam Master J was somebody that I grew up uh, totally just thinking was great, just a pioneer. The, the band was a pioneer or the rap group was a pioneer. Everything they did was amazing. So you have that that fan base that, that wants resolution for the person that inspired them with the lyrics or whatever. I also think that just advances in modern technology and how we look at evidence, you know, as time goes on, things become available in testing that wasn't available when he was murdered. Also, over time, eyewitnesses may soften up to uh, feeling like the family needs resolution. But not only that, 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 you know, for example, this eyewitness, his friend needs justice and he knows who did this. In fact, one of the killers came up to him at the funeral and said, did you see who did or one of the alleged killers? said, did you see who, do, who who did this? He said, no, can you imagine the pressure? And, and that's a message of, did you see anybody? No, okay, well, I can understand why he didn't talk, but over the years, as maybe you grow older, you know, you raise your kids, you're a father, you see what he was denied, what your friend who got murdered was denied, and then you want justice, and maybe time uh, eases some of those fears of retaliation a bit, but maybe the quest for justice for somebody you knew and loved is greater than the fear you have that you might be retaliated against because sometimes doing the right thing isn't easy, but it's right. And especially for somebody who doesn't have a voice anymore and you're in that very small group that can be his voice because you have information that can put the perpetrators behind bars where they belong and where they should have been decades ago. So yeah. hopefully, you know, um, 
hopefully this this I'm very interested in this case, to say the least, just because there is so much hanging over the trial with how big it is and and the circumstances. So it's it's going to be one to watch for verdict, especially. Yeah. Yeah. I, 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 I think these cold cases, too, one, they're a salute to the tenacity of really good police work. But I think it's also this idea that justice never sleeps. It may be delayed, but it, it, the, eventually, in a lot of these cases, even decades later, the, the, there's going to be that knock on the door and there's going to be officers there with, with handcuffs. I, <clears throat> I personally handled a case when I was in the DA's office that was uh, 25 plus years uh, old by the time it was brought to trial. Um, and it had to do with a couple of really good detectives uh, began to take a look at some of their unsolved crimes in their uh, station, dusted off an old book and had a different way of looking at it. There was no new science. There was no witnesses coming forward. They just took a look at this case a little differently than it had been before and were able to solve a murder that was a couple of decades old and bring comfort to those victims. So I... I think that a part of the reason and people who follow true crime, it's that idea that, you know, sometimes just this tenacious police work can do incredible things. So I agree with you, though. This case is fascinating for, for many reasons, and we will continue to watch it and update everyone as to what happens in trial. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Finally, we move to Detroit, Michigan, where testimony continued this week in the landmark trial of a school shooter's mother who faces charges for the actions of her son. Jennifer Crumbly faces four counts of involuntary manslaughter for four students who were killed in the Oxford school shooting carried out by her son, Ethan Crumbly. Through four days of testimony, prosecutors have sought to illustrate Ethan's deteriorating mental health and his mother's alleged failure to intervene. Jurors heard from the dean of students who met with the Crumbleys the day of the shooting after a teacher discovered a troubling drawing created by Ethan depicting a pistol and the disturbing, quote, help me blood everywhere. While the dean noted that the parents did not take Ethan home and warned that the child needed immediate counseling, Crumbly's defense noted that the parents both had to return to work. Jurors also heard excerpts from Ethan Crumbly's journal, where he described his disturbing thoughts and mental decline, including the plea, I have zero help. 
However, her defense suffered another error in the trial after joking about committing suicide while she was struggling with the technical aspect of her presentation. This comment sparked debate in the emotionally charged courtroom with prosecutors in Crumbly's defense allegedly alleging insensitivity towards the victims and their families. The judge ended that day, sending everyone home as tears poured down the face of Crumley's defense attorney. The lawyer later apologized to the court for her comment the following day. Addressing the court herself, Crumbly agreed to have thousands of Facebook messages she exchanged with her husband and admitted as evidence in the ongoing trial. Another prosecution witness, Brian Maloche, also took the stand, revealing that Crumbly and Maloche were having an affair at the time of the shooting. While evidence of the affair was inadmissible, Crumbly allowed, agreed to allow references to the affair after encouragement from her attorney. While the mother is not on trial for her infidelity, Maloche testified that Crumbly told him that she was able to meet up the day of the shooting, despite allegedly telling school officials that she could not take her son home because she needed to return to work. Crumbly's former employer also testified, saying that the mother would have been allowed uh, leave for the day if she needed to take care of her son. Maloche and Crumbly also exchanged texts in the wake of the shooting in which Crumbly alleged the school had been, quote, nonchalant with concerns about Ethan's well-being and should not have allowed him to return to class. The trial continues with prosecutors expected to rest their case sometime this week and the defense is expected to call Jennifer Crumbly to the stand in her own defense. All right, Gigi, lot to unpack there. Um, first, I've asked this of a lot of guests. I just want to get your act, uh, reaction to this case in general. Do you agree with the prosecution in even bringing this case? It's not a. This is not your typical case of who done it by any means. It's a what is it? It asks the question of not just um, should these parents be held responsible, but should any parent or guardian be held responsible for the independent actions of their children. And I highlight that term independent because there's no allegation here that they were involved in the planning or execution of this horrible crime, but just that they didn't do enough to perhaps pre prevent it. So go ahead. What are your thoughts? I do think uh, this is a landmark case that could uh, definitely see a lot more parents and hopefully not that we don't have any more school shootings, but they're becoming so commonplace that I think this had to happen because, you know, in this case, you have these cries for help that were ignored. Mom was too busy with horses, with her lover, too busy with her lover to take her son home for the day when, uh, you know, look, uh, the school, the parents failed these victims and they failed Ethan. And that's why we're here. As far as the parents being charged, here's my thing. You buy him a gun. You have seen text messages that you didn't answer, but he sent you saying that thing, you know, things are flying around the room. He only sees things when he's alone. There are clear signs this boy is in mental distress. And what do you do? You buy him a gun. And then you sign that paper acknowledging that it is a crime to buy a gun for a minor. And then he gets in trouble for looking up bullets. Mom says, make sure you don't get caught. Um, I think that we do have to have this conversation because if you're going to have firearms in your house, that's your right. Second Amendment protects that right. You also have the responsibility to secure weapons from minors all the time. Even if they go to the shooting range with you here in the South, uh, kids, you know, as soon as you can pick up a shotgun, you're taught how to shoot one. You're also taught gun safety and parents lock their guns up. I mean, I, I don't think I've been in a house that 
doesn't have a gun safe. When you're leaving these guns out and you're buying them for your child, you have to be held responsible. It's your job to secure a deadly weapon in your house. And they encouraged it. They bought it and then encouraged him to be more careful next time. Yes, I do think when these weapons are brought from these homes, it's on the parents because they're not properly securing these weapons from children. And then you get families that are devastated for the rest of their lives. I'm all for it. Um, I, I think it should have happened a long time ago, to be honest. Yeah, a lot of people agree with you. I I guess I just am troubled with the idea that, listen, buying him the gun, awful. Not doing enough as a parent, awful. It, do we all want to take steps to stop these tragedies? Absolutely. But everything that's being described to me so far talks about neglect, talks about bad parenting, talks about... Um, uh, you know, certainly things that should open them up to civil liability and lawsuits and everything else. But the part that I'm having trouble wrapping my head around is you're talking about a person who took independent steps. There's evidence he hid stuff from them. There's evidence that he, uh, he, he certainly went and got that gun without their permission. There's a lot of things that he did independent that they were unaware of, at least that's the way the evidence is playing out. And then took it upon himself to go out and do this. That to me in the criminal world is where you should say a line needs to be drawn. Now, do I think that parents should never be prosecuted? And no. Is this the case where maybe the facts are enough to say that they should be? I guess the jurors are going to let us know. It's just you begin to get into a world of really slippery slopes when there's not a kind of clear line between one person's independent actions and another's. But I cannot agree with you more that they did a lot of really awful stuff and ignored a lot of really awful stuff. And so it's just it's just so painful that, um, you know, this is on the backdrop of, of lost lives that we're talking about all of this. And we certainly all agree that we want to do something about it. If we could change gears for a second, I just want to talk about the defense in this case. There have been a few times where the defense attorney has, um, call it a misstep, call it courtroom theatrics, or what have you. Now we have this latest bit with the you know comments made about suicide and the crying in court. I, to me, when the personality of the defense attorneys are becoming a bigger part of the case than the evidence, that's a big problem. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I think so too. And I understand this is a big case. We just talked about how it's kind of a one of a kind, first first of its kind case it's being live streamed to the world, but you have a job to do and you have to be mindful of, of your position in that courtroom. And um, I, I'm sure she did not mean to to have that come out the way it did. At the same time, you've got to control your emotions. You've got to kind of just breathe in and do what you are what you're there to do. Defend your client, but you know we've we've had a few things with this defense attorney. I think a lot of it comes down to nerves. To be honest with you, I think that uh, to me, that's what I kind of read it as is not so much her just being a bad attorney, but just it's it's a lot of pressure. Um, and and this is a very sensitive subject. I mean, you're you're watching video of these kids laying dead in in school. That's going to affect uh, defense attorneys, prosecutors, doesn't matter who's in that room. But you do have to get it together. You know, if, if our surgeons, when they're operating on us, they're upset because of what happened to us or what they're seeing, and that affects their performance, I mean, that would be really bad. And I think it kind of is the same in, in a defense attorney. This is, this is her client. 
She has to yeah. do her, the best job for her. You got to leave emotions at the door. You can't get flustered. You got to put on your poker face because, I mean, court was adjourned that day. Lost precious time. Witnesses lined up, had to come back. You know, so it's a problem. Yeah. Yeah, that's a really great analogy. This is this is somebody, you, you have the responsibility of somebody's life in your hands, essentially. Certainly their freedom. Um, this is this is as serious as it gets and when you start letting your personality or your own emotions become the center point of the trial to the point that we're we're talking about it right we're not talking yeah. we've been talking about the evidence but we're also talking about this i think that's it is a problem um okay we're getting reports that she is likely going to testify i think she needs to testify i think this is one of those rare circumstances where she really does need to testify what do you expect and what do you think she needs to do and accomplish in order to give herself any chance with these jurors oh man I, you know it's gonna be tough because i think the only thing she can do is get up there and admit her shortcomings as a mother uh, we have all the evidence we need that she ignored the kids. She could go take care of her horses. She could text her lover, but she couldn't respond to very disturbing text messages from her son for hours. Um, so I think the only thing she can do is say, I, look, I'm a bad parent and there are innocent kids dead because of that. And I admit it, but it was never my intention for anybody to lose their life or my son to be in prison for the rest of his life. I don't see what else she has to work with. Yeah. Yeah, it's a it's going to really be difficult for her, and I think a lot of this case is going to come down to how she testifies. Um, so much the prosecution has done such a good job so far of painting this picture of her that I think the only thing she can do is try to humanize herself to these jurors to be like, "You're right," like you said. First, there has to be a huge mea culpa, and say, "I'm I'm horrible. I've made many mistakes," but the end result I think has to be, but. I tried. I cared about my son. I made mistakes, but I loved my son. I wanted to do the right thing. I was dealing with a lot of difficulties. If if she can at all get some jurors to maybe place themselves in her position and say, geez, I don't know what I would do under the circumstances. I'm very busy. I've got a troubled child. They've said some crazy things to me in the past. I'm doing the best that I can because, you know, this is a nightmare, I think, for parents as well to imagine their child, you know, not only the people who are imagining their child as the victims of this tragedy, but imagining their child as the person who perpetrated this is a, is a complete nightmare as well. Well, we will continue to keep an eye on that case. Like we said, it may be concluding as far as the prosecution's case as early as today. And so we may be into the defense case by the time this is released. And we may be looking at uh, deliberations even that soon. But in the meantime, Gigi, thank you so much again for coming on this week. Where can people find out more about you? I'm all over the place. Anywhere you've listened to your podcast, YouTube, I do... Um have a channel there where the uh, the podcast version is video with the graphics a little bit more expanded social media hit me up follow along we uh we're fact driven and no rumor or speculation we just want to get down to the nitty-gritty and be a voice for victims and the families and those left to pick up the pieces after these these horrible crimes happen so appreciate all you guys tell us uh, the name of your podcast again pretty lies and alibis do yourself a favor and check it out, everybody. It's really worth listening to. I'm your host, Josh Ritter. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Joshua Ritter ESQ or at JoshuaRitter.com. You can find our sidebar 
episodes wherever you get your podcasts. And we want to hear from you. If you've got questions or comments you'd like us to address, tweet us your questions with the hashtag TCD Sidebar. And thank you for joining us at the True Crime Daily Sidebar.